Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, publisher Barry Cunningham and author M.G. Leonard join us by phone from the United Kingdom. Barry is the publisher and managing director of Chicken House Books, which celebrates its 15th anniversary in the U.S. this year. In case you didn't know, you owe a bit of gratitude to Mr. Cunningham. He's the guy who took a chance on the Harry Potter series back in 1996 in the U.K., As Rowling herself said, if it wasn't for Barry Cunningham, Harry Potter might still be languishing in his cupboard under the stairs. Later on in the episode, we'll talk with M.G. Leonard. She made her debut at Chicken House this year with the wonderful novel Beetle Boy. Now, here's Barry Cunningham. Chicken House is described, possibly in your words, since you're an editor, as a small, highly individual children's book publishing company with an enthusiasm for new fiction. Can you tell us how the company came to be and how it came to the United States? Yes, I, I've always um, I've always loved working with debut authors, really, because... It's more collaborative. You know, you, you, you form a team, you develop the ideas, you give them advice, they, they teach you stuff. And I think those very early days of an author's career are, are perhaps among the most exciting. Um, and when I was at Bloomsbury and before that at Penguin, it was the debut authors that I kind of enjoyed publishing most, really. So uh, after I was lucky enough to publish the, the first Harry, I had a bit of a open door to do what I wanted next, really. So, <laughs> so I decided that, that what I wanted to do was, was to start my own publishing company so that we could do lots of new talent and we could get talent from different places as well, really. So, yeah, so we announced we were starting it. And then uh, Ellie Berger actually rang me and said, I see you're starting a new company. Do you (laughs) want to talk to us about it? So we had breakfast. And then she said, well, you know, we'd love to to be a partner. So I came across and and I think we were the first and maybe we're probably still the only non, we were the only non-owned part of Scholastic uh, in those days. So she, she, we did this where she would distribute us in America, but at that time we were still an independent company. And then as time went by, we became kind of closer and closer, and and eventually we got married. <laughs> so Wait, it was what? a lovely relationship, but it but it started out, you know, with really. I know Ellie, Ellie, and and the rest of the the Scholastic friends. And Dick was involved, you know, trusting us that we would continue to come up with with interesting new talent. Really, not not just one of those companies that that buys in existing talent, but develops it themselves. Really. Okay, so you're talking about Dick Robinson. We went all the way to the top here, huh? Yeah. That's, yes. that's fantastic. Well, congratulations, and I Thank think you. you're celebrating your 15th anniversary. Is that yes. right? That's right. Okay, yeah. so how has the company changed over the years, and how has it remained faithful to its initial mission? Yeah, I think it stayed faithful to its vision of taking risks, you know, that 
the one thing which I'm sure you know and everybody knows that the next big thing in children's books is never going to be the thing that happened last year. You know, there is no point in saying, let's do more of the same. You have to reach out and try out new writers. You have to try out new directions. And I think we've we've stayed really firm to that. Uh, resolve really that we've um, we've gone into new age groups. We've tried new subject areas. We've um, we've been adventurous, but I think we've got better at it. I think by working <laughs> working with Scholastic, I think we've got a lot more professional. We've got a lot more thoughtful, really, about how we analyse what we're doing and how we quantify what we're doing. So, um, in, in a sense, we've become. We've become. I always think that publishing is a cross between librarianship and gambling, and I think <laughs> we've we've got better librarian skills now. And while we still kept our gambling ability, so I think we've learned an awful lot by working with Scholastic. So you must love getting up every morning with adventure and risk taking and gambling and librarians. There's nothing better. There isn't really. I mean, it's such a joy. I mean, it's. It, I can't. I sometimes still can't quite believe that um, I make a living out of, um, you know, of, of reading books, taking risks, working with authors, doing all the things that I'd be doing anyway. Right, right. <laughs> you alluded to this earlier, but for our listeners who are across the pond from you, as they say. They may not know that you worked at Penguin and that you were at Bloomsbury in the United Kingdom, and you are known, of course, as the original editor, drumroll please, for J.K. Rowling, (laughs) and as the publisher of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Yeah. So what about that book stood out to yeah, you, well, it was, <laughs> if anything? It, yeah, it was, it, it's an amazing story, really. I mean, I, I started off in Penguin in marketing, really, and I worked with Roald Dahl and other great characters there, and um, I kind of learned from them about, you know, the difference between the books that, that, that maybe maybe parents and teachers tell children they should like and the ones that they they really love and I always think of them as the book huggers and I used to see uh, children queuing up to meet Roald Dahl and hugging his books before they got there you know it was a physical relationship that they had and of course he was part of that because Authors, I think Cornelia Funke, who's another one of the people we published, said that authors are the, the secret friends of childhood. And, and really, I kind of learned all about that from, from working in Penguin. So when Bloomsbury asked me to set up their children's list, I was kind of looking for those book hugger books, not, not books that were perhaps like what everybody else was doing, but, but that were a little different. So, yeah, when I, I read the first Joe Rowling Harry Potter book, and I, I didn't know it had been turned down by, you know, 23 other people or whatever <laughs> the story was, I fell in love with it. And I fell in love with it because I, I guess it was the friendships, really. Of course, I love the owls and Hogwarts and everything else, but I love the friendships, which reminded me of, again, it reminded me a little bit of Roald Dahl, how it's the, the strength of the children themselves that pulls through. And, and, and I loved it. So... So yeah, it was uh, it was it was a kind of easy choice. But um, she she used to tease me afterwards that one of my jobs in marketing at Penguin was as um, I don't know if you've had to do this, but uh, as I, I was a giant costumed character, I was a, a reading <laughs> bird, and you know 
And it's a bit like being an author because you're, yeah. you're anonymous and you're cuddly and you're friendly and, and children tell you their secrets. And she said that the reason why I bought Harry Potter was that I was the only uh, children's editor who had been a giant costume character oh. and therefore was, was closer to what children really wanted. Oh, um, that's lovely. Several of so, my colleagues have done the Clifford costume, I have to say. Yes. I'm going to have to take a whack at that. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, 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 you know, you kind of miss it when you take it off. <laughs> You've got to go back to your ordinary self. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, it makes me think, did you know that Harry Potter would be the mega hit that it became? Well, I guess I always knew that children would love it. I, uh-huh. I, I was really confident of that. But, but to be honest, I never would have predicted that so many adults, so many grown-ups would share it. And I guess we were lucky enough to publish it in that time when, when adults began to share books with their children to some extent, even reading the same books. And, and I think it was, it was the way that it appealed to the adult market, which I absolutely never predicted. But yeah, I always knew that children would love it. And I always knew that she would be a great and loyal author, you know, from the very, very beginning. Uh, She cared an awful lot about the detail. She cared about getting things right. She cared about what the fans thought. It was a complete um, mission for her. She strongly believed in the world from the beginning. So, you know, I, I never thought that that connection between children and her would be anything else but really, really strong. But as I say, I certainly didn't predict its world domination and theme parks <laughs> and movies and, you know, games, you know, um, never. Have you seen the new play over there? No, I'm going to see it. Actually, I'm going to see it with some scholastic friends when they come over. So I think we're going, I'm going to see them both of the plays later this month. Have you read um, the coveted script? Yes, I have. <laughs> great. Do you want to I weigh in? <laughs> I love it. You know, I've always loved those extensions of stories, you know, because I've never met a child that doesn't believe that, you know, something happened before the first book and something happened after the last book and you're just not telling them. <laughs> so I've loved though, that extension of the world. I just adore it. Now, I want to ask you, how did you get the name Chicken House? I think that's a pretty cool name. Yeah. Well, I, I have, um, in my, I live in the country in, in, in England, in the west of England, in a very rural part of the country. And in our garden, when we bought the, the, the very old house we live in, it had a chicken house on wheels, a little like they had in The Fox and the Hound, the old Disney film. And they used to, in the old days, they used to move this portable chicken house around through different fields and things. And my kids used to play in it. So I kind of, I didn't, I, I just thought it was a lovely name. Yeah. And then we thought of our web, our initial website was called doublecluck.com, which was a great joke on, <laughs> on double click. And then when I talked to, um, um, when I first started talking to America about our books, they were saying, you know, those are books for free range children, aren't they? And mm-hmm. it all just fitted together. So um, I now think it's a perfectly ordinary name, but it's probably not. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it, it has a certain novelty for me still. And I, and I wondered if you could talk a little more about how you discover and nurture the new talent, the free-range authors, as it were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we run a number of different ways of doing that. We, we, we. Of course, we have books from established overseas publishers and from agents, but we also run a number of direct competitions. We run one with the Times of London, which is every year we run a competition open to everybody for the best unpublished book. So we have well, it's nearly two thousand entries every year of complete books. Now we also run something with the Blair 
their agency, actually, the Harry Potter agents. It's called The Big Idea, and that's a very unusual competition where you can enter with just an idea. So just in 50 words, you can enter your idea, and then if we like it and it wins, then it's developed by an author or a scriptwriter or a television writer, and then the originator of the idea is involved all the way down the project, but they're not necessarily, they don't have to write a huge book or anything. And so we run a number of other things as well, but, but you know, we're interested in reaching out. So sometimes, again, we'll work with a movie company on a script, which we'll turn it back into a book. If it's not a book already, then we'll create one. And sometimes we'll work on an idea from a movie that maybe doesn't come, but it's a great idea. So, you know, we're, we're interested in story, I suppose. And story now comes from all sorts of areas. We have a 24-hour story culture, you know, with every advertisement wants to tell you a story now, not just sell you a product. So, you know, the, the world of story is now ever expanding. You know, um, I was talking to a firm of accountants the other day, and they, they even have, a, um, they have someone in their organization who, 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 who kind of constructs the story of their business for their clients internationally as well, you know. So this whole idea of, of story and, and, and telling good stories from bad stories, from uh, narrators in adult books who don't tell you the truth, so you've got to guess what the story is beyond what you're told, you know, it's all that that I'm really fascinated by. And, and that's, what, that's the kind of mine we continue to work in. What are some of the upcoming titles that you're most excited about? Well, I know you're going to talk to our Beetle Boy author. And, <laughs> yeah. um, she's, uh, I'm very, very excited with the second book that she's writing in that oh. series as well. We have a title called The Apprentice Witch, which, again, we're publishing um, next year with you in next summer by James Nichol. And that's just, it kind of slightly reminds me of early Harry Potter days. And it's a, it's a story about a witch who fails all her exams, who gets sent to a very remote place and in the end we find out the reason why she's failing isn't because the magic is not good enough it's fact it's too powerful um but it's a lovely cozy story when you love all the details in it as well i'm just in love with the world and we've got a very funny book called who let the gods out which is um <laughs> about how boy um uh, literally inadvertently lets the greek gods back into our modern day world so lots of big ideas coming on my we're very excited oh. about all of those. In terms of Beetle Boy, I know one reviewer described the book as a darkly funny doll-esque adventure. It is. It's a it's tough story in a way, you know. And, and a little, it reminds me again of what I learned with Roald Dahl, really. He once told me that, um, and this is kind of serious in a way, and I didn't don't think I really understood it at the time. He said, the thing you've got to remember, Barry, um, is that laughter is delayed fear. And... You know, he really showed how humor is so important to the way that children deal with their world. Because sometimes if you're very frightened or, you're, or you don't think you can do something, you can still make a joke about it. It makes, doesn't make the bully feel any um, less strong, but it makes you feel more confident. So, you know, the way that Beetle Boy is a very funny story as well as a very exciting one. I just loved the way from the very beginning she used humor in a kind of, in quite a tough story telling way. Yeah, amen to that. And looking back for a moment, I know you're responsible for the relaunch of Beatrix Potter. 
Yeah. Um, and I just want to thank you personally for that. The Peter Rabbit books for me were among my favorites. And I oh, lo- that's lovely. I loved when, um, I mean, Mr. <laughs> McGregor, you know, made a pie stuffed with yeah, Peter's right, father. Right. And I, <laughs> that I, was again, the best. It's back, it's back to those same things about Beetle Boy and Roald Dahl. Yeah. But, you know, what I think children respond to in those stories are that if you're naughty, you get your tail cut off. You know, <laughs> there's a consequence. Yeah. <laughs> Is there ever? Yeah, and I was lucky enough to be part of penguin um when when we acquired the old worn company so i was able to go back and be part of of pulling out all the original artwork that oh, she left and amazing. re-originating the books so that they looked beautiful again you know where they've been let you know endless reprints to fade away uh, and we were able to represent them for a new generation so yeah i'm proud of that i was very glad that was that was a great legacy to to be part of my goodness well what a wonderful career and it's such an honor to talk with you. Thank you so much, Barry. Thank you. Bye-bye. Now, we'll hear from M.G. Leonard, who goes by the name Maya. Hi, Maya. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. And can you tell our listeners where you are right now? We're a little jealous here. Um, I am in my study at home, which is where I write, and home is in Brighton by the sea. Wonderful. And you're working on, I think, the next book? Is that I right? I am. I'm just trying to put the finishing touch on the last edit for Beetle Queen, which will be available uh, next year or the year after, I think. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. I wanted to start with a quote from you that I found, and it might give our listeners here an idea of how Beetle Boy your first book. Is this your first book with Chicken House? It is. Okay, yeah. how that came... book ever. Oh, congratulations. Yay, yay, yay. Okay, <laughs> how this book came to be. I'll start with, ever since I was little, I've been frightened of creepy crawlies. Then I found out that beetles can be pretty, brightly colored, even gold. Others are as strong as the Incredible Hulk. Some shoot acid out of their butts. Okay, I've never seen that. And all beetles have wings. My fear had stopped me from seeing how fantastic beetles were, so I decided to write an adventure with beetles as the good guys. All right, tell us about that. I'd just like to say that the beetles that shoot acid out of their butts are called bombardier beetles, and they really do exist. It's a defense mechanism to ward off predators. But, yeah, I was... Up until very recently, actually, frightened of all creepy crawlies, but particularly as a young girl, I was terrified of spiders, but also moths, bees, wasps, earwigs, woodlice, anything that crept and crawled, I found uh, horrific. And I didn't really see the point of them either, other than to terrify me. I felt that, you know, that was their main purpose in existence. So I never really looked at them. I never really considered them. I never really thought about what the point of them was. I mostly just ran away from them. (laughs) That's what I did for many, many years. And, you know, I was the kind of person who have cans of bug spray under their sink, you know, because I'm so scared of bugs that I can't just kill one. I have to, like, stand 10 meters away and hurl objects at it and spray things and try and kill it from a distance because, I mean, I genuinely... I was just, you know, the worst, the worst kind of fear. And it was totally irrational, and I cannot tell you where it came from, because I don't know. But I started writing this other story 
and I had a villain and I wanted to describe my villain as being as villainous as possible and so I decided that he would live somewhere that would be you know uh, infested with insects because I thought insects were so horrific uh, and terrifying so I thought well I, I you know I can do that I just need to describe lots of different types of insect and so I wondered what is a creepy crawly is it an insect because I know that a spider is an arachnid not an insect uh-huh. and then I started to be perplexed about the definition of what a creepy crawly was like is a woodlouse a creepy crawly I would say yes but I then learned it's not actually an insect it's a crustacean which blew my mind and then I kind of fell down this rabbit hole into a wonderland where I realized that I really didn't know anything about insects but in particular about beetles when I discovered that, you know, the Latin name for beetle is Coleoptera, that's how the species is kind of defined in the taxonomy system. And Coleoptera means sheath wing. And so it, what it means is that the beetle is defined by the fact that it has two pairs of wings, a hard outer pair that look like sheaths, and underneath a hidden inner pair with which they all fly. And that, to me, was... Well, wrong, because I thought beetles just scurried around under rocks and stuff. I certainly didn't think about them flying, and I didn't imagine them with wings, and I couldn't, I couldn't understand what I was reading. And then I scrolled down, and I saw pictures. I saw pictures of beetles as big as my fist that looked like zebras with wings that were iridescent blue. And I suddenly realized that not only was I completely ignorant... But these guys were just incredible. I've never seen creatures as incredible as the Beatles, just even on that Wikipedia page. And that, <laughs> that was the beginning of a journey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Beatles are pretty versatile. I have to say, when I was reading Beetle Boy, there were echoes for me of Kafka's Metamorphosis. I have many different types of inspiration. Metamorphosis was definitely one. And also, do you remember the horror movie, The Fly?, I don't like horror movies. They scare me too much. The Fly was a horror movie from the 80s, I think, with Jeff Goldblum. Oh, yes, Um, yes. Yeah, and uh, that's something that I watched as a teenager, and it has seared itself into my brain because it terrified me. Right. Um, And also because, you know, I didn't like insects, so I don't know what I was doing watching a horror movie about a fly. But, yeah, so there are lots of different things that I've noticed about the literature and kind of culture of the way that we reflect on insects in our society and it's very rarely positive unless you're the humble bumblebee which makes us lovely honey in which case you know you get you get to be the good guy sometimes (laughs) it struck me that insects are often vilified or in the negative position in that position of otherness or alienness or weirdness and i i wanted to try and champion them Um, And that's what I've tried to do in Beetle Boy. You had an amazing career in the arts before you became a writer. You have a master's in Shakespeare studies? I do, yeah. Wow, that's pretty cool. And you worked at the Royal Opera House, the National Theater, and Shakespeare's Globe. You also worked in the music business. How have your experiences in music and theater influenced or shaped you as a writer? Well, when I was very young... I've always loved stories. I'm one of those people that will tell stories at the dinner table for hours, and I just, I love stories. 
And when I was young, I really struggled with writing. I didn't have very neat handwriting, and I found grammar really difficult, and, and spelling was something that didn't come easily to me. So I danced instead, and I used to love ballet, and I would dance Romeo and Juliet, and I would dance Swan Lake, and, and I would tell my stories physically and through music. And I, you know, consequentially became a massive uh, music head in my teen years. I, I knew an awful lot about music and loved all types of music and still loved dancing. But I couldn't become a dancer. Uh, one day we'll meet and you see I'm a very tall, ungainly, skinny woman and I, I definitely could never have become a lovely petite ballet dancer. <laughs> um, and so I kind of decided that I still wanted to perform but I couldn't dance, so I thought, theatre, that'll be it. I, I don't have to write the words, I just have to read them. And I've always been a voracious reader. So I thought, that's fine, I just have to speak the words. You know, no one's going to look at what I've written and, and accuse me of stupidity if I can speak clearly. And so that's how I got into theatre. You know, theatre embraces dance and music, and I really felt like I had found my, my niche, uh, was telling stories physically with words and music and and then I realized as time went on that the things that really inspired my imagination the most actually were the words of Shakespeare it was a passion that started very early on for me when I was about 10 I was a witch in Macbeth and from that <laughs> moment onwards always sought out the Shakespeare plays because they always seemed to have the most incredible high-powered language and I really enjoyed saying those words and so for me, it was, that was my route in really to kind of poetry and trying to put down a few words of my own. And it's only kind of now as an adult through education and through just never, ever giving up that I've found the confidence to tell my own stories with my own words. All of that kind of storytelling and expression and just you know, wonderment that I've experienced in the cultural sector because I have loved my career every minute of it. I feel like it was all, you know, all food and confidence building to finally get me to the stage where I can stand and proudly say that I think that I can tell you a damn fine story. <laughs> Good for you. I have to say, you sound like a precocious child. At 10, I was the Halloween witch in my school play. You were like Macbeth. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. I also am intrigued. I listened to a few episodes of your podcast series on oh, writing, which I really loved, and I found it to be enormously helpful. You describe, I mean, writing is a wonderful process. It also can be quite agonizing. And as you say, it is work. It is work. So yes. could you tell our listeners, you know, some of who may be writers themselves, what some of your top tips are for writing and revising? Yeah, well, one of the things that struck me very early on, and this may seem, it always seems so obvious to people when I say it, but when you're doing it, it just doesn't occur to you, that you should really not try to sit down and write when you are tired. And one of the mistakes I made early on when I started trying to write is that because I have children I would sit down at the end of the day and try and write and everything that came out was like mush it was rubbish <laughs> uh, and and I just thought I was no good and then I realized that actually you know all my best hours I had already spent I had been at work and I had been with the children and I had given all I had to give so when I sat down to try and write nothing good came out so I, I flipped it on its head and I got up an hour earlier uh, and I gave my best 
to my writing. Uh, and I just had an hour every day. That was all I could afford, really, in my kind of normal, busy life. Um, but it was enough to put down 400 or 500 words that weren't mush. And I just did that every single day. You have to treat it like, you know, you can't wait for inspiration. You have to treat it like work. I did that every single day for six months and got a ridiculous 120,000-word draft of Beetle Boy after six months. But then I could begin editing. Mm -hmm. And editing you can do, you know, in short bursts and you can do in your lunch break. And it's not the same as writing that first draft. But my top tip is just don't do it when you're tired because it's impossible. <laughs> right, and I thought another great tip was don't start revising, don't read what you wrote. Just keep writing. Oh, yeah, don't look back. <laughs> yeah, don't look back. <laughs> Which, don't ever look back, yeah. <laughs> no, because you'll look back and just see how terrible it is. You have to save that until you've got the whole thing. Because it's only once you have the whole story laid out in front of you that you go, oh, no, I can change, oh, I can make that much better. No, this 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 can change over here, and I don't need that character. And, you mm-hmm. know, it's it's much easier to improve something once you're at the end if you start meddling halfway through you just turn yourself into someone who's standing in the middle of spaghetti junction surrounded by traffic and you just don't know which way to go (laughs) all right well that's great advice you said you were a voracious reader as a child i wonder if you could share some of your favorite books with our listeners Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, I read everything as a child. I mean, I, as a person, I'm, I identified very strongly with um, George from the Famous Five, uh, who was a tomboy, and Pippilotta Longstocking, oh, yeah. um, who I thought was fabulous. But I loved, in particular, books like The Secret Garden, because I found the kind of regenerative effect of working in that garden um, and learning about nature to be a really powerful and wonderful theme that's stayed in my head ever since I read it. And also Wind in the Willows was one of my, I mean, I read Wind in the Willows at least six or seven times. And that was the characters in that, the personification of Toad and Ratty and Molly and Badger uh, were just wonderful. So I kind of, I liked adventure and I liked nature really early on. Now I'd love for you to read the opening passage from Beetle Boy to set the story up for our listeners. Yeah, sure. Dr. Bartholomew Cuttle wasn't the kind of man who mysteriously disappeared. He was the kind of man who read enormous old books at the dinner table and got fried eggs stuck in his beard. He was the kind of man who always lost his keys and never took an umbrella on rainy days. He was the kind of dad who might be five minutes late picking you up from school, but he always came. More than anything else, Darkus knew his dad was not the kind of father who would abandon his 12-year-old son. The police report stated that September the 27th had been an unremarkable Tuesday. Dr. Bartholomew Cuttle, a 48-year-old widower, had taken his son, Darkus Cuttle, to school and gone on to the Natural History Museum, where he was the director of science. He'd greeted his secretary, Margaret, at 9.30, spent a morning in meetings discussing museum business and eaten lunch at one o'clock with an ex-colleague, Professor Andrew Appleyard. In the afternoon, he'd gone down to the collection vaults, as he frequently would, via the coffee machine, where he'd filled his cup. He'd exchanged pleasantries with Eddie, the security guard on duty that day, walked down the corridor to the vaults and locked himself in one of the entomology rooms. That evening, when his father didn't come home, Darkus alerted the neighbours and they called the police. When the police arrived at the museum, 
the room Dr. Cuttle had entered was locked from the inside. Fearing he may have suffered a heart attack or had an accident, they produced a steel battering ram and smashed the door open. The room was empty. A stone-cold cup of coffee sat with some papers on the table beside a microscope. Several coleoptera specimen drawers were open, but there was no sign of Dr. Bartholomew Cuttle. He had vanished. That is some gorgeous writing. Oh, so <laughs> beautiful. I have to say the names are a little Dickensian. Where, where did you come up with all of these beautiful names? I never really thought about the eras that the names are from. Some of them are actually a bit Dickensian. Mm-hmm. Dickensian. Some are Victorian. Some are actually 16th century. But um, uh, Darkus, for example, in England we have, or had, he's sadly passed away, an amazing cultural commentator called uh, Darkus Howe. Uh, And I used to listen to him on the radio, and he was an incredible man with really a lot of important things to say. And I had never seen his name written down, so I assumed it was Darkus with a K. Uh, But actually, I've later discovered it was with a C. And so I'd heard him, and I really loved his name, so I always wanted to have a character called Darkus. And Cuttle sounds like a friendly name to me. It sounds a bit like Cuddle, and it reminds me of the fish. But if you say Darkus, Guttle, together... It sounds like dark scuttle, which to me brings to mind a beetle. So one name is modern, one name is friendly, but together they make the sound and the image of a beetle. And even though the reader may not be aware of that when they're reading those names, the alliteration in your head, I feel like it places that subliminally in there. But I appreciate that they might be unusual names. I can see why Barry Cunningham was drawn to you and your work. <laughs> As we're wrapping up here, I know now you mentioned you're working on Beetle Queen. Is, what, I am, yeah. t- tell us what else you have in the hopper over there. So Beetle Queen is really finished. Uh-huh. Um, I have set out on the first draft of the final book in the Beetle trilogy. And I have a couple of other pots on the boil, as you might say, that uh-huh. I'm just trying to firm up. I'm really interested in a couple of subjects that I'd like to find stories to explore and one of them is the pollution of the ocean to me is a very interesting and problematic thing that I think a wonderful adventure could draw attention to so at the moment I'm trying to work up some ideas about that and the other thing that I'm really interested in is the kind of beauty myth and the impact on young girls I have sons I don't have any daughters but I have nieces and I've always wanted a daughter uh, and it troubles me greatly sometimes that young girls feel such pressure to look a certain way or appear to be something and so I'd really like to see if maybe I could write a story for young girls at some point in the future I love that. When you said you were gangly, I thought that, gee, I bet you're beautiful. You know, that term isn't one one would often associate with beauty. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's so it's fascinating to me. My niece, I have a six-month-old niece, and the muscles behind her eyes aren't developed, so her eyes kind of, they roam everywhere. And, you know, she's beautiful. She's tiny. She's beautiful. But the concern already is, you know, what happens when she becomes a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old, and it's that thing of what will be the impact on her if that's not resolved early? Mm-hmm. It, will it mar her in any way because she won't look perfect? And that's such a problematic question to me. And as a mother of sons, not such a, a pressing concern, but 
I think it's something that I'd like to explore in stories. I'm so glad that you are, and I'm so honored that I got to talk with you. It's really been a pleasure. Oh, no, it's a pleasure, Suzanne. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you, Maya, and I'll continue to listen to your podcast. (laughs) Oh, bless you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Barry Cunningham and M.G. Leonard for joining us today. You can find more about Chicken House Books and Beetle Boy in our show notes at scholasticreads.com. And thank you for joining us and for sharing in our mission at Scholastic, where we believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world of possible. Special thanks to producer Morgan Baden, sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberle. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.